Episode 156 of the PJ Archive is a phone interview I did with the former Australian tennis superstar Rod Laver, who's widely considered one of the greatest players ever, if not the greatest. His 198 singles titles are the most in tennis history and include 11 Grand Slam singles titles. Laver remains the only player, male or female, to win all four Grand Slam singles titles in the same year, twice. He was ranked number one in the world from 1965 until 1969, and some sources say also in 1964 and 1970. This interview took place in 2010. Basically, what are you up to these days? What, what fills your time these days? Oh, I, I'm not up to too much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I enjoyed the competition, and my wrist is a little tender. I got arthritis in my wrist, so I don't really get to play much tennis. So, uh, so I, don't, I play a little golf and uh, enjoy, I think, just smelling the roses. <laughs> How much tennis do you manage to play? I haven't played any now in, in the last six, six, nine months because my wrist is pretty tender to play with it. So you know, jars, you know, all the cart little cartilage between the little bones in the wrist have uh, disintegrated, so it's given me some trouble. Do you think you won't ever play again then? No, I, I, hit, some, I hit some balls around with my, uh, my son, but uh, nothing competitive, no. Nothing in front of public, put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> because I've, uh, it, it, it uh, doesn't, uh, yeah, the stroke, stroke left me, yeah, I'm fine. But, you know, just all the little, all the smaller muscles, yeah, don't, don't quite work as well as they used to. How much do you think all the exercise you did as a young man has helped you in old age or has had actually given you problems? No, I, no, I think, you know, my tennis career is, I'm sure it's been uh, an asset in my physical being as well. So, you know, I think the competition and the exertion that you have on a court uh, has helped me uh, all the way through my life. How much do you miss competition? Well, I, I used to miss it. You know, I used to miss it uh, a lot when uh, I... Not, not that I officially retired, but when you don't play very much and then you get out there and say, I'd like to, like to see what some of the matches, if you watch Wimbledon or the French, you, you tend to you know, sort of reminisce that you played back there in your early years, not the last time you played there, but all the way through your career when I was at, the, at Wimbledon, a 17-year-old kid, and uh, then being, having won it, uh, you know, you just don't jump to the final yeah, where you won it, it's just all the way through the, your career, you've, you know, you're building um, confidence and uh, improving. So that's, you remember that more than you do the fact that, you know, you missed the competition. But, uh, but no, I've, I was uh, very fortunate in, in my career. It really was uh, something that I'm, you know, I'm proud of. Quite right, too, yeah. And how, how many um, tournaments do you visit these days as a spectator? No, not too many. I was, I was at Wimbledon last year, which was, uh, I guess, the 40th anniversary of the Grand Slam in 69. So that was one reason to go back there. And, but I don't go there unless there's some occasion to uh, get to that, to that event. But uh, I haven't been to the, uh, the US Open in uh, quite a few years. 
people still talk about Wimbledon as being the number one tournament. Do you consider it so? I yeah I, yes I do yeah I think it's uh, you know it's it, it's got the tradition it's got the atmosphere it's got uh, you know most of the players I think on the tour uh, would dream of trying to win Wimbledon or entering it to, with the thought of winning Wimbledon you know whether they have a chance or not uh, it's it's there and it's uh, it brings out the best in everybody. And we have, uh, in Britain, we have Andy Murray, but uh, he seems to be going through a bit of a crisis at the moment. Any thoughts uh, on that? Yeah, I, I'm not, uh, I haven't followed him very closely, but uh, he has, uh, you know, seems to have, you know, I, I think he, when he, this year especially, I think he went, got himself really very fit and strong, and and I think in his mind he thought that, if he was the strongest, he could outplay anybody on the court. And, uh, you know, it just, I think mentally something's happened that, uh, you know, he's had a problem with, you know, early on in his career of, I wouldn't say not trying, but was, was upset with calls, with the crowd, with coaches. And uh, I thought he got over that. He played some wonderful tennis there a couple of years ago. And, and now he's sort of back in the same frame of mind that his, game is not where he'd want it to be and I don't know whether he's practicing with it or I don't know what his his mental approach is. Well people say that he hasn't got over being beaten by Roger in the Australian final this year. Well I don't know about that I think he he certainly played well in the beginning of the Australian and even the latter part of last year he was playing you know great tennis and uh, he looked like he was going to you know jump ahead and play really well but uh, you know he's uh, I, it, it could be I'd, I've not been around him to know exactly what his thoughts are but uh, yeah, it's a downer when you lose but you're in the final so you can't be too much of a downer when you're in the final No absolutely and right but people keep saying oh I'm sure he'll win a Grand Slam one day but he's already 22 and Roger and Rafa had already won easily by then do you not worry that he may never win a Grand Slam like we do? Well, I think that's possible, but if he's putting pressure on himself, yes, it will be. If he's putting, well, I've got to win a tournament by the time I'm 23. If I don't win by 23, I maybe I'd never win one. And if his attitude's that way, you, 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 you know, you're not uh, giving yourself, you know, you're, you're shorting your career. You know, you, you know I, I won the, the, the Grand Slam at 31. So why would 22 be a problem? It's only because the other two have won it. Because you look through your career, there's a lot of players that have gone late 20s, 30s, you know, have won Grand Slams. So, well, not not in the open world, but I've been prior. But it's still it's still competition. If you were guiding Andy or even British tennis in general, uh, what would you suggest? Because we seem to be in the doldrums for a long time now. Well, I. You know, Andy's Andy's got a good future ahead of him. I I wouldn't uh, feel like uh, the press or the public should uh, write him off because he's having a bad six month period. I think he's uh, you know a lot of it's hard to uh, get yourself up for tournaments, and sometimes it's hard to keep yourself up. It's it's unique that when you see Federer and you see Nadal, those two are capable of raising to their occasion you know no matter what the position whether it be bad courts or windy weather or, you know they find a way they find a way to win and 
you know, that's the thing is that, uh, you know, Andy maybe hasn't quite found that level yet, but, uh, you know, he certainly has the ability to find it. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, if, if the UK press tend to write him off, yeah, yeah, maybe he, if he's uh, susceptible to reading his comments and or reading his copy, <laughs> yeah, it, that, that'll get into his head. And, uh, you know, that's... That's unfortunate, but I think that you've got to let the player, you know, play as hard as he can and, uh, you know, encourage him. And I don't know what coaches he's got. So that's that's something that has to be, he has to work on himself. What about Australian tennis these days? Because in your day, you were one of a number of fantastic players. But these days, they seem to be fairly thin on the ground compared to that time. Yeah, we've had a bit of in the doldrums, uh, I think, uh, tennis. The, with the children playing, uh, you know, the schooling, you know, you know, didn't maybe push the uh, tennis as much as other sports. Uh, I think golf has become very popular down there. You've got, uh, you know, certainly you've got soccer and cricket and all other sports, which most other co- countries have. But I don't know what exactly what the problem is. I think coaching was one of the reasons, uh, I think, that some of the players or some of the young children coming up didn't get you know good good grounding on on stroke production and effort you know i think effort is a big thing that uh, maybe is is missed uh, down there i think you know that's something that you know you gotta gotta you've got to take your knocks and got to come back and keep fighting harder and harder and and that you know gets you in into pretty good shape mentally when you're playing matches and you're down you know, a break in the third set or whatever, you know, you don't just say stop and say, well, okay, I'll do better next time. You've, you've still got this match to play. And I think that's something that, uh, you know, you've got to find it. But nat- natural talent, uh, maybe it's moved to other sports. And uh, I think that they've now on, they've moved into a lot of the various country towns around Australia and have uh, set up uh, clubs and uh, coaching programs and, you know, getting the youngsters that are very talented to uh, enjoy the game of tennis. It does seem that the youngsters from less affluent countries than England and Australia and America seem to have more desire to win. How do countries like ours deal with that? Well, yeah, I don't know. I think, you know, it's, you know, it's something that comes from the, within the family, I'm pretty sure, but... Uh, you know, Serbia and certainly Argentina and these places, uh, you know, have got some, you know, great young talents that have come along and you've got still younger, you know, younger ones coming up through those ranks. But, uh, you know, I don't know exactly how uh, how it all happens. I know in Australia, like you said, there was a whole group of players that uh, was was just before me and just after me, you know, when you look at Sedgman and McGregor, and then you're looking at Hode and Rosewall and Cooper and Anderson and Fraser and all the way down the line, and then you went past me to Newcomb and Roach, and so there was a whole group of players, but you know, what caused it? I don't know exactly what caused it. I just, I came from a small town in uh, Queensland, Rockhampton, and Mm -hmm. the Australian Association didn't contact Rockhampton and say, oh, you got any good players there that uh, you can send down somewhere? You know, it was just because I enjoyed playing the game i had a a family that it was felt well not competitive but they 
enjoyed tennis. We had they built a tennis court in their backyard, and so you know it was just the lifestyle was tennis. Mm. And do you have good memories of your childhood playing tennis and stuff, or like some professional players, do you kind of think you played it a bit too much as a youngster? Wish you'd done a bit more of other things in life. Well, I, I, you know, I don't know. I I enjoyed every bit of my childhood when it came to uh, playing playing various sports. I played I played. I was a reasonably good cricketer. You know, thirteen, fourteen, twelve, thirteen, fourteen. But I also played tennis after school there was not much tennis in schools in our little there's only maybe one one tennis court on in our school it was a small school but when you come off you know i played after school i had two older brothers that were were very good and so of course you know that was competition right there for me but uh no i enjoyed my childhood uh, competing and i didn't necessarily move off to the small tournaments i don't know whether i would have enjoyed if I didn't play tennis, just hanging out with the, the kids that you're friends with at school, I, you know, I did both. Do you still have family and friends in Rockhampton? No, there's not too many in Rockhampton. My brother and sister live in Gladstone, which is just a little bit further south, about 80, 80 90 miles. But, uh, you know, we, I've got family and uh, cousins that are down there. And, uh, you know, some of them uh, enjoy the game uh, a lot more. They are young kids that are coming up. Uh, and uh, you know they're playing tennis and and playing pretty well. So you know you you never know. You know they just, you just got to give them a chance to give them a racket and a, a tennis tennis court and uh, just see see how they come out. Uh, you know I got a, a a granddaughter that's she plays uh, a, you know a little bit of little bit of soccer. She's pretty good at soccer. She's eight years of age and uh, so you know you just uh, like I think it's. Hereditary, uh, you know, you, my my son is is good at golf and tennis, and uh, but didn't didn't make any com- competition days, but he was very naturally talented. Friends of mine in Australia say that uh, in Rockhampton these days there's statues of bulls, which they're famous for, but there's yeah. no statue of you. Yeah, there's a statue of me there. Oh, is there? <laughs> Just a a bust from uh, that was made. There's one down in a, down in uh, Melbourne, at, and the busts that are around by all the past champions on the grounds of Melbourne Park, and uh, they they also have one on the on the Fitzroy River of myself. But mainly, yes, they're 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 bulls. <laughs> <laughs> the central central Queensland uh, meat meat market abattoirs there. It's a big big cattle country. And apparently, there's an amusing scandal there where people have been stealing the. Uh the private parts of the bulls. <laughs> I, 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 I guess yes. I, I, I had heard that, but I hadn't heard much, much about it. <laughs> How, when did you last go there to uh, to Rockhampton, or even to Australia generally? I was there. It was two two years ago. How do you feel going back there nowadays? You know, I, I, I enjoy going back. Yes, I do. I wish I could go back a little bit more, but you know, I'm living over here and. Uh, you know, it's just not as easy to skip away uh, as it used to be when you were competing. Hmm. It's possible that the young people of Australia today may know the name of Rod Laver best from the arena named after you, rather than perhaps recognise you in the street if you walk down an Australian street. Yeah, it's uh, actually when I was down there, I was surprised that uh, a lot of people in the street when we're down 
just walking walking through the streets would come up and say, you know, they enjoyed my career, and uh, a lot of times it was the the father that came along and uh, introduced me to the to their their child. So you know, it, it, they recognize uh, they recognize the name, and they've you know they they do they do know who you are. <laughs> what about in America? Do you get recognized as much there, or is it quite nice to have a bit more anonymity? No, it's uh, it happens here too. I, you know, as I say, I don't have any any complaints about anybody coming up to and being uh, annoying you or pest, being a pest <laughs> because they just want to say hello. Uh, no, I've gone, you go to the market or you're going to shopping. You know, you come across people that they they know who you are. Would you say that you had a uh, traditional path into tennis uh, as a youngster, or do you think yours was quite unusual? No, I think I just just a regular path into competing, and you know, you, you start off at a low level. You know, you're not you starting off with uh, playing in the under 12s and under 14s and 16s, and and you're playing in the small towns around Rockhampton. You know, where there's it, there's plenty of small towns that put on those events. Uh, you know, each each little little city has a has a tournament every year for the for the under 12s or under 14s or 16s and then you got open and you know so the the community you know gets behind those sort of events and so it was fun to be a part of it at what stage were you first told you were a bit special no i i don't know there's a uh, there was a coach that uh, it was in rockhampton was a good player and had a good method of coaching you know and instilling confidence in you said you know if you if you work hard you've got a got a chance to win a uh, some of these big titles that you look look to uh, when you're you know listening to Davis Cup or you're watching Hoden Rosewall and uh, Sedgman you know you think that hey hey maybe you one day you you could be someone if you keep working at it so you know yeah I guess I had potential when I was young do you think you really believed you could do these things as a young young person when, like, Wimbledon's on the other side of the world for you and everybody's heard of it and it's such a massive thing? Did you really believe you could do it? No, not, not when you're 12, 14, 16, or even 17, 18. But, you know, you, you take it one step at a time and if you, you get to win the Australian Junior Championship and all of a sudden someone says, hey... You know, you've been invited to go to Wimbledon, and then you say, "Wow, that'll." You know, I mean, that's a that's a thrill, but you're not thinking of winning it. <laughs> hmm. You're thinking of going to it, and I think that's. Uh, you know, I I think if you put your sights way up high, you know, saying, "Well, I'm going to win Wimbledon one day," you know, it's one thing to say it in, put it in your mind, but it's another thing to say it. As soon as you say it, it's printed and and it's out, and all of a sudden you're you're a uh, you know. <laughs> You're getting too big for your boots, type thing, and I think you just you know you just play hard and you work work three or four hours on a court and you practice and you get the best competition that you uh, can when you're out there playing, and you make every post a winner. And if that's if that's the way you play, think good things happen. We know you as one of the great gentlemen of the game of the, of sport generally, but as a youngster, did you ever throw tantrums and? behave badly on a tennis court oh i'm sure that my mother said that said i did <laughs> <laughs> but i i you know i think i was yeah i i think i when the match was over i'd shake shake the the child's hand and uh, say hey 
you know, too good. Hmm. I'll get you next time. But I don't think I was bad-tempered. Uh, maybe, yeah, I'm probably, in practice, you've probably thrown your racket into the fence a few times, but uh, nothing nothing too demonstrative when you're competing, though, because, you know, you, you, the other person is, is trying to beat you. So, accept it. But when tennis changed in that respect in maybe the 70s when the likes of McEnroe and Nastasi came along how did you feel about that were you disappointed for your beloved sport no well uh, yeah I disappointed uh, certain antics that you just don't uh, I just is just bad bad form with a you know I think Elena Nastasi was uh, was the ringleader of it was you know it was risque being rude his attitude was rude. Hmm. And uh, one thing with McEnroe would be to complain about line calls and, uh, you know, grumble on the court. But it's another thing to speak out some of the rude things that Nastasi would play. So, you know, yes, it was, it was disappointing that those sort of things crept into the game. But hmm. at the same time, it, you know, it, was, it, it, it in a way gave exposure to the game of tennis. Yes. And, and you say any, any publicity is good publicity, but... That that phase has has drifted off and is not there anymore. Now you've got you know great uh, athletes and uh, great mannerisms on the court, and so that's you know another another vein. But I think tennis probably became more popular because of McEnroe and uh, Connors, you know, fighting and yelling at each other. But McEnroe, like so many players, including Federer, have always said that you were their idol. Was it difficult for you to speak out against McEnroe because he so worshipped you? And yeah. presumably at the time you probably were annoyed with him from time to time. No, I, I, I think I, I, you know, I got, uh, I'm sure I gave him some bad press when I say he the antics on the court aren't necessary and, and, and why, why is he doing it? It's just not good for the game. So, yeah, but I'm sure he read, read some of the copy, but we're still good friends. <laughs> what about the the clothing that people wore in your day? Do you look back and think those were the days we loved it the, the way it was? And do you sigh at some of the stuff that people have worn in more recent times? No, I don't know. You know, it seems like the, you know whatever. I watched the Nadal and Federer match. Uh, you know, their clothing looked pretty good to me. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you 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 know you're looking at uh, you know tennis wasn't a game. Everything was all whites and. Uh, yeah, you know, it was Fred Perry and Lacoste, and that's about it. And they just no no one out there in the in the the clothing department, you know, stores or not stores, but manufacturers hadn't got into tennis because tennis was a, a small sport when I came along. Mm. And now, of course, open tennis, and now you've got about ten or fifteen huge companies uh, in the clothing, and then you've got Adidas shoes. You've got you know, I, I've still I still have a a, a labor model with Adidas. Oh, really? And and you know, and I've had had it since. It's one of the longest contracts, I guess, out there because it. Uh, I signed it in 1971, and uh, you know I just signed another four-year deal a year ago. So, I mean, there's a lot of things out there, and but there's a lot of avenues for people to to make good good money uh, with the game of tennis. And people are always comparing players and different who's the greatest and all that sort of so on. But I mean, the equipment and the fitness and the techniques and everything make a big difference, don't they? Oh yeah, yeah. The the, the rackets have changed the game of tennis. Uh, 
you know, you've got uh, plus the next generation of people are taller. You look at everybody. You know, it's not unusual to see a uh, well. They can see a, a Murray at six six three. I guess he is. You know, and then you're looking at Del Potro at six 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 seven. <laughs> you know, and you're looking at uh, Eisner, and you're looking at Kalikov at you know at six nine six ten. I mean, back in our years, uh, there was no one anywhere near that size except for there's an Orlando Sorolla who was maybe six seven or six eight, but uh, his ability to get around the court wasn't very good. So. Now you've got athletes that run like they're, you know, six feet and not six seven. So, I mean, there's a lot of things that have changed. The racket mainly being the, the biggest generator of, of spins and being able to play, you know, with the different grip sizes now. The ball bounces higher, so now it, it, it helps a taller person. You know, you go into Western grips and double-handers, and there was, I think there was one... One person with double hands back in the, the, my my era. Do you think someone of your size could do well in professional tennis these days? Well, I, I think around six feet. But you know, I think Rosewall and myself are probably an unusual group. I think you know Michael Chang did okay, uh, you know, for for a small amount of time. But uh, it, it it's a disadvantage. What would you say were your greatest assets as a tennis player? I guess all just an all-round player. I never had any specific strength. I had a reasonably good serve, and I was able to move around. The, I think anticipation and, and and moving around the court was one of my uh, assets because uh, you know I think all my stroke production. I was I was probably more of a wristy player back in those years than anybody else was, and. And, you know, I, I kept at it, and I, was, I finally got it under control. But I just, that's the way I played. I just enjoyed uh, the spins. You know, I never could hit a ball flat and keep it in. So I, I put spin on the ball. And you seem to share that incredible Australian quality of determination, never say die, mm-hmm. which they show in every sport. I mean, just watching the cricket yesterday, you know, you can never rule out the Australians. Yeah, I think it's drilled into you at a young age with a, in Australia. I said, you know, you you can be known as a, a quitter and not trying and not uh, giving your best when it really counts. And I think that's, uh, you know, I think there's always been a few things that, you know, I think Roy Emerson uh, used to say some of the words that made sense was, he, he says, I've, I've, I've never beaten somebody, uh, you know, and, and when he was, wasn't, wasn't, where he had something wrong with him, so he was full of excuses. In other words, hmm. you know, he couldn't he couldn't take take the fact that someone you know, that Roy beat him. He's the fact that he were he wasn't feeling well that day. Hmm. And I mean, that's not the right attitude. To that's not going to make you a competitor. You know, in your own uh, own field when you're playing out there, you're you walked on the court and you were fit and ready to play. So no excuses. And that's I think that was the Australian way. How do you feel about the era that you played in? Have you ever wished you perhaps played in this era or another time? Well, no, because you just you you've probably answered my question by the size. My size uh, wouldn't probably be able to compete in today's world because uh, the balls bounce so high that uh, you know when Federer kicks that ball out wide on your on your while well, on the second court, I don't know whether I could hit it. Hmm. <laughs> so. Yeah, you know, yes, there's probably things that you could do to combat it if you're in in that in that thing. If you, you if you're working hard about it, you find 
you're trying to make it work. And, uh, you know, I was, you know, I had, I had the ability to, to play in the amateur world and, I guess, learn slowly as you come through the ranks. And then I turned professional in, for five years. So, you know, you, you learned a percentage game back in those years. And then when Open Tennis came along, you had access of staying, being able to be fit and being healthy and not having any injuries, uh, open tennis was uh, a great thing for me because I had an amateur career, a pro career, and an open career. But on the other hand, you were deprived the ability to play in Grand Slams for many years. Does that not frustrate you when you look back at your records? No, I, you know, you just, everything you can say deprived, but, uh, you know, I think I didn't... Uh, I had to make the decision to turn pro because there was no money in the amateur world. And, you know, we, I didn't come from a rich rich family. So I had to had to turn pro. And uh, it, it was a, a good move for me because, you know, that, that was something I had the ability to play against some of your own idols when you were playing Lou Hode and, uh, you know, Ken Rosewall's in there and uh, you've got a whole group of players in there when I turned pro. So, you know, you... you you learned. I learned a lot from the on the game just through playing those guys every night. I played them every night, so I was in pretty good shape when it came to open tennis. And I was just fortunate that I was young enough to still be able to compete. In uh, recent times, it seems some players literally hate the person the other end. They have to really get angry about them. But you guys always seem to respect each other. Was it kind of hard to compete against people you genuinely liked and were mates of yours? No, I, it wasn't. You know, we, we, we made it clear when we, we, before we walked on the court. Your own career is on the line every time you play. And, and that, that was the mode that we, we walked on the court. We said, you know, we can be good friends, but uh, you know, I'm, out, I'm out to beat you on the court. Hmm. And so it, it's something that uh, I guess is in many ways when I played Rosewall so many times in the open era, you know, it was something he... You know, he he pretty much knew where I was hitting every ball, and I knew exactly where he was hitting all hitting all his favourite shots. So, you 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 know, you had a chance to you knew each other's game backwards and forwards, and and so personalities didn't come into play. People refer to your time or you guys as like the Brat Pack of tennis. Is the, do you think that's a good description? No, no, of course a Rat Pack, but we <laughs> certainly were a, a, a good good group of people that. Got along, got along, uh, and you know, you, you, you know, because we played Davis Cup uh, together, uh, you know, with Rosewall and uh, Emerson and Anderson and uh, Neil Fraser. There was mm. a whole group of players. So you're 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 one minute you're a team playing together, playing Davis Cup, playing on a Davis Cup team for Australia was was a you know a, a huge honour, mm. and so everybody. Work, work as hard as they could to get each individual player that was going to be in that competition playing their best tennis. And if, if you needed to go out, as me, me as a lefty, because if he's playing a lefty, they said, well, you know, go, Rod, you go hit serve to uh, Neil Fraser and serve that ball out the wide to him and, and keep, keep serving it until he gets it set up, set. So he's ready, he's going to play his best tennis against another lefty you're playing in Davis Cup, so you, you always come across that level of play, and I think that is something that uh, 
had us uh, enjoy each other more than uh, anything. And I think Harry Hopman was certainly a, uh, a an asset to keeping everybody together. It was very moving a couple of years ago watching you present the Australian Open trophy to Roger Federer and it meant so much to him to meet you and to be with you. Did you have many emotional moments in your career? Because you always seem to be, you know, keep your emotions in check. I guess I did. Uh, you know, I don't know whether it was a, something that I worked at to not show the emotion, but, uh, yeah, I certainly, I maybe didn't show it, but you still have the thrill of... Uh, Meeting uh, very various ones, like being able to say you met the Queen when, when you know, you, she presented the, my, the trophy to me in 1962. And, you know, it was a thrill to meet the Queen. You know, it's just a, an honor to be be out there with her. So yeah, yes, but you, but I maybe I kept I kept most of it in. Do you have many funny memories of meeting our royalty? Because the Queen's actually supposed to not like tennis very much. Yeah, but she came, she came in 6062. And I think uh, I'm not quite sure. She she came before in the 50s. I think she came a few times, but the Duke of Edinburgh was there a lot of the time. But it was different meeting the opportunities to meet uh, you know the the various personalities when it looks to you know Menzies, the Prime Minister of Australia back in those years. You know, he'd come to the Davis Cup. So those opportunities uh, you, you don't forget them. How did you cope with the etiquette side of meeting royalty, bowing and all that sort of stuff? You and got the royal highness. Yeah, I, I mean, it's just like the opportunity to meet, uh, you know, George Bush, the president of the USA. You know, you, you know, hello, Mr. President. You know, it, I mean, it's you, you honoured to be in, in his companies, and it's the same as being in the company of uh, not royalty, but your notoriety. Uh, I think it was Colonel Colonel Leg presented trophies. Down in Bournemouth, uh, mm -hmm. no, uh, no, wasn't Colonel Egg. I guess it was. I forget your your war heroes. Douglas Bader. No, I met Douglas Bader actually. Did you? And uh, played 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 a few holes of golf with him up in uh, up in I think it was Troon. I think we played. And I you, you marvel that uh, he used to be in the bunker, and you think, well, what's he going to do now? He, he hit it in the bunker, and he he just jumped into the bunker. <laughs> Just jump in and, and found his found his way out, and his caddy pulled him out, and so it was just unbelievable to meet those people, and you know, meeting the uh, the first hitting a few balls with the first heart patient with uh, Christian Barnard. Yeah, yeah. And uh, hitting, you know, and then he brought him over to Alice Park in Johannesburg, and hitting. Uh, he says, you know, he can yeah, he can play some tennis and. Uh, it was. It wasn't a. Yeah. You know, but he certainly could swing at the ball. And he could move around a little bit. So yeah, you know, that those sort of things they they stay with you. They're, it's a great a great honour to be able to do that. I remember in the late seventies, mid seventies, when Bjorn Borg came along, and there were girls chasing him across centre court and so on, and people described him as the first heartthrob of tennis. But did you have anything like that going on in your career? No, nothing. Nothing like that. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, did lots of women sort of flock around the game and hang around your hotels and all that sort of stuff, or was it very different in your time? That was very different back in our years. That <laughs> didn't happen. But how did you enjoy the fame side of, of being a, a top tennis player? The fame? Yes. I enjoyed being uh, being out on the court and performing uh, and showing your ability on the court. 
but that was that was uh, that was it. I, yeah, when you come off the court, you're another another you know, another Joe walking around the field. It's been said that you were f- tennis's first millionaire. Any thoughts on that? No, I think it it's yeah. You, you pay tax on a million bucks, so you know you know how much you've got left, and traveling goes with it. So I don't think I yes, I think probably prize money. You know, I think it took three or four years to uh, accumulate it. So, but I was was happy to be making money back in those years. And a lot of young people, if they got that kind of money, would spend it madly and buy flash cars and big houses and stuff. Were you very wise in investing your money, or did you? Were you a bit uh, flash with it? Yeah, no, I, I think I was probably a little more wise than some of the people that have earned, earned the big money. But uh, no, I didn't. I wasn't a big uh, big spender, I guess. So obviously, everyone was very worried about you in the late '90s when you got ill. What do you remember of that, and how did you recover? Well, it's just part of, you know, I was fortunate. I was at UCLA Medical Center, or very close to it. And so getting to the hospital uh, and getting oxygen was, you know, I had a I had a, a stroke. It hemorrhaged in the brain, and I, I was uh, in intensive care for about three weeks. So, yes, it was, uh, I've yeah, I was paralyzed on my right side, but I fortunately was able to, work my way back into getting all those muscles and nerves uh, back uh, working okay and so I feel very fortunate when you have to learn to speak again and uh, get your brain working to where it could memorize things so now I'm uh, I feel like I've everybody they keep throwing you know throwing things at you and you've got to work work your hardest to uh, get over them when and why had you moved to America in the first place my wife is American, and that was the reason to come and live over here. Mm-hmm. But uh, I guess competition-wise, uh, most of the tennis was here in the U.S., so that was probably that, plus uh, meeting a you know a lady over here and getting married. That was the start of uh, spending, I think, a lot more time here in the U.S. May we know the name of your wife and children? Yeah, it's uh, yeah, Mary Mary Laver. And my son is uh, is is Rick. He's forty. His daughter is uh, Riley, and his wife is Sue. Right. Yeah. And uh, may we know roughly where you live and what your home is like? I live in California. Yeah, just a three-bedroom place, I guess. Just living. You know, it's, it's it's a nice community. Have you got a tennis court and lots of memorabilia from your career? No tennis court, but uh, I'm, I'm very close to Country Club, which is down here, and uh, it's, a, it's a known tennis community. A lot of tournaments played here, and uh, we just happened to we had a, have a place here. So, Do you have many souvenirs from your career? Just memorabilia from, uh, yeah, from the various trophies, uh, you know, from the, the various tournaments. And how often do you watch your matches on DVD and so on? No, I don't. Unless somebody wants one, we we watch a few things, but there isn't too many on television, uh, you know, on DVDs. What do you think is the greatest match you ever played? I guess winning the first Australian back in 1960 against Neil Fraser when we had a long five-set match. And then winning, maybe winning the French uh, in in 69 against Rosewall was one of some of my best tennis on the clay courts, so... 
And if you could go back uh, to the beginning of your career, would you change anything? No, not at all. I think it was just thrilled to be able to be out there competing. And, uh, yeah, you'd always want to say, oh, I should have won that match. But <laughs> but there's also there's a lot out there that maybe I shouldn't have won. And that probably was the that Australian uh, final in 1960 in Brisbane. You yeah. know, a couple of match points, two sets down and match points down. And that you struggle through it. And uh, I think you, you're a better person for it. Do you think any other players in the future could possibly emulate your achievement of winning the full Grand Slam a couple of times? Well, you know, I say, as you say, the game has changed. There's, uh, not that there's more competition, but there's certainly depth in competition is a great deal now when you're looking at uh, you know, the players that are out there competing. You know, each match that you play uh, probably could have been the final the week before. So you've got a lot of a uh, lot more competition out there, and uh, and I think that's probably going to be more and more difficult for anybody to to win a Grand Slam. But uh, you know, at at the moment, you know, Rogers Roger Federer is uh, potentially a chance of winning the uh, the French uh, this year. But mm. yeah, I mean, there's a lot of good players out there, and then he's certainly capable of winning Wimbledon. We know that. And the U.S. Open is on hard courts, so we know he's good at that. So, yeah, you know, you've just got to be fortunate to play your best tennis at the right time and not have any injuries, no sicknesses, and you make it. How content are you at this point in your life compared to earlier times? I'm very content with uh, enjoying uh, family and watching some of the tennis uh, that I just watched was the Madrid final against... Uh, Nadal and Federer, so, you know, I'm just watching. I'm very content 